Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the show. It has been a minute since we last spoke. I think it's actually only been a month, but my God, what a month it has been. How are we doing? Are we hanging in there? I am, I suspect, like many of you, working overtime each day to find reasons to keep going, to keep this ship afloat. And I must say, before we get back into the show... I want to thank everyone who has enthusiastically supported us in the last four or five weeks. Many of you have purchased our record with Fran Lebowitz. Some of you bought one of the two mugs we had made uh, in cream or navy. Some of you just wrote me an email, drafted a tweet, an Instagram comment. All of it, and I do mean all of it, is how we keep on keeping on here. The truth is you don't make a labor of love for four and a half years without love from you. Each of you that listens, that reaches out, tells us that the kind of conversations we foster on this show, they matter. That even in this digitized, corporatized, maddening moment, there is room yet to connect, to hear and to be heard. A space where we can all sound as perfectly imperfect as you and I are. That has been my goal since I started this podcast in 2016, and it continues to be my goal as we approach five years 
this April. So whether you're new to Talk Easy, or you've been here a year or two or three or four, welcome. It's good to be with you. We have so much in store for 2021, but today I wanted to sit with someone who could speak to what's happening in American politics right now. That's why this week we're sitting with Julian Castro. He was formerly the mayor of San Antonio before taking a job in the Obama administration as the United States Secretary of Housing and Urban Development. Most recently, he was a Democratic candidate for president, where he ran on the Green New Deal and immigration reform, with an emphasis on family reunification. In a crowded, diverse field, Castro was the only Latino candidate in the race. Now, he's the host of Our America with Julian Castro, a podcast that reimagines America by talking with real people all over the country who are struggling, aspiring, and trying to reach their dreams. We'll include a link to his excellent program in our show notes. For now, I sat with Julian to unpack all that is happening, from the upcoming second impeachment of Donald J. Trump to what we can expect from the Biden-Harris administration and, ultimately, the future of the Democratic Party. I hope you enjoy. Julian Castro, thank you for being here. Great to be with you. To put our current political situation in context, I want to go back a minute. Throughout 2019, as you were running for president, you were adamant that then-President Trump be removed from office for allegedly pressuring a foreign leader to investigate now-President Joe Biden and his son Hunter. A year and a half later, in the aftermath of a Trump-supporting mob storming the Capitol, we find ourselves engulfed in yet another impeachment process. In fact, your twin brother, Congressman Joaquin Castro from Texas, will serve as an impeachment manager in these proceedings. Those are set to take place on February 8th. But today, this week, as the articles of impeachment were brought to the Senate, there was a vote of 55 to 45 as Republican lawmakers tried to dismiss the impeachment charge as unconstitutional. So, given the refusal amongst Republicans to even hear the evidence, let alone act on it, do you believe, as a former attorney yourself, it is likely that Trump will suffer any real judicial consequences for his actions? It's a good question. I was very disappointed, like a lot of other Americans, to see so few Republicans be willing to move forward with the Senate trial. To answer your question, obviously that doesn't bode well in terms of holding former President Trump accountable for his actions, specifically for inciting an insurrection attempt. But I think it's still important because as a country, we need to put a stamp on, put an exclamation point on how wrong his conduct was. And even if ultimately he's not convicted, I still think that having been impeached a second time, specifically under these circumstances, and having, let's say, 50-something 
senators vote to convict him, that's going to go down in history and that's going to serve as a marker for future megalomaniacs who may consider trying to do what he did and undermine and even overthrow our democracy. Look, it's no surprise that so many of these people that haven't shown a backbone over the last several years when it comes to standing up to Donald Trump won't even show a backbone now that he's out of office, banned from Twitter, doesn't have his Facebook, doesn't have the same ability to stir things up as he did back then. But like Marco Rubio in Florida, they're afraid that there are going to be repercussions. Ivanka Trump primarying him or Trump going out and finding a primary opponent against other people in other places. They're held hostage to this guy that only has his own interest at heart, like I said back in 2019, and not the interest of the country. You said it's going to go down in the history books. Is it convincing anyone new today by impeaching him a second time? Is there anyone really out there who's still wondering, is this man a good man? that is going to flip by a second impeachment. I think there are a lot of people in our country that don't really follow politics. And you have to start thinking about it in terms of people following what's going on, people not following what's going on, and then whether they actually vote or not. Of the people that consistently vote all the time in presidential elections, you know, it's probably not going to make a big difference in their opinion of Trump. But there are a lot of people who are either new to the process, they haven't voted before, and they, they might think about it, who have been disaffected from the process, who think that politicians are never held accountable for anything. People that are really, you know, even though this is a very small group now, I think people that legitimately are, are swing voters that are in the middle that will consider all of the evidence. So I do think that it makes a difference. But fundamentally, I think it's the right thing to do. And under these circumstances, you have to do it because it's absolutely the right thing to do. And you want to send a signal to prevent a leader like that in the future from coming along and perhaps being successful with what Trump attempted to do. You mentioned there are a lot of people who do not follow politics. And I'm glad you brought them up because I do wonder, are Democrats running the risk of alienating those who say, you know... I don't have time for politics. Of course, what happened that day on the Capitol was upsetting. It was abhorrent. It was embarrassing. Obviously, Trump had a role in it. But given the gravity of this pandemic, the climbing unemployment numbers, a looming housing crisis, is it imperative that we impeach a man who's no longer in office? I mean, isn't focusing on a judicial battle unlikely to succeed the exact thing people say they're tired of. They're tired of politics. They're tired of politicians. And what they want to see is government tangibly improve their lives. Well, I think that might be a problem if Democrats weren't focused on those things that will help people. I mean, look what they're, gonna, they're bringing up already, right? At least $1,400 more per individual. People will be getting a check that they desperately need, you know, in, in the near term. These executive orders that will help make sure that more people are able to thrive, legislation that Bernie Sanders and others introduced to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. I mean, these are bread and butter issues that affect the livelihood of people 
all over the country of all stripes. So, you know, they're walking and they're chewing gum at the same time, and both of them are important. On top of that, you can already tell the difference just in one week of the Biden administration of what it means to have the government in the hands of competent, professional people when it comes to distributing the vaccine, moving forward to get herd immunity on COVID versus the Trump administration. The Biden administration has ramped up plans to get up to 1.5 million people vaccinated per day in the next few weeks. Uh, you know, they're making sure that communities have a better supply than they've had before. These are all things that like will impact the lives of people who follow politics, don't follow politics, cynical, not cynical. I think the lesson of the past for any political party is, look, when you get into power, you need to use it responsibly and people need to feel the difference of why you were voted into office. And for Democrats, that means that they're supporting not only the wealthy and big corporations, but everyday people. They believe in competent, effective government, like distributing the vaccine effectively. Uh, and we're going to make sure that everybody counts in this country. And that's what I think these executive orders were about, to make sure that no matter your background, that you're able at least to have a shot at opportunity. So I feel like they're doing both of those things they need to do, making life better for all of the Americans who need it, but then also holding this megalomaniac who incited an insurrection unprecedented in our nation's history, holding him accountable. In your bid for president, you were a routine critic of then Vice President Biden. Uh, first of all, Mr. Vice President, it looks like one of us has learned the lessons of the past and one of us hasn't. My immigration plan would also fix the broken legal immigration system because we do have a problem with that. A lot of what uh, Vice President helped author in 94 was a mistake. And he has flip-flopped on these things. When we talk about criminal justice reform, there are a lot of things that we can talk about. Sentencing reform, cash bail reform, investing in public defenders, diversion programs. I'm proud that I'm the only candidate that has put forward a police reform plan. Well, what we need you. are politicians that actually up. have some guts on this issue. Thank you, Secretary. Mr. Vice President, please your response. I have guts enough to say his plan doesn't make sense. Here's the deal. Now that we're in this Biden-Harris administration, how have you squared away your reservations with these elected officials? Well, I mean, part of that is, of course, when you have a, a primary, and in our primary, it wasn't just any run-of-the-mill one. We had, at one point, 25 different people running. You're going to have some differences, you know, on the edges of policy. And, of course, we all had those differences. At the same time, I, and I said during the campaign, I recognized that if any one of those folks had been elected president, you know, of course, including Joe Biden, that they would be a much better president than President Trump. And look, on the vast majority of things, I agreed with Joe Biden and with most of my primary opponents. I'm very happy that he's moving forward, trying to make life better for everyday families out there. Part of the thing that's been exposed in this pandemic has been the huge inequality in this country and the fact that we desperately need to address that. So him expanding healthcare, raising the minimum wage, investing in housing opportunity for people, all of those things are things that I agree with, those policy differences on the primary notwithstanding. You know, since Biden won in November, there's been this larger almost 
philosophical conversation about which direction the Democratic Party should head. And as we're seeing, there's already gridlock in the Senate that is going to impede any major piece of Democratic legislation. And I want to go to something Ezra Klein wrote in the New York Times this past week. None of these bills will pass a Senate in which the filibuster forces 60-vote supermajorities on routine legislation. And that clarifies the real question Democrats face. And that is kind of the question I want to pose to you here. Klein writes, Democrats have plenty of ideas that can improve people's lives and strengthen democracy. But they have repeatedly proved themselves more committed to preserving the status quo of the political system than fulfilling their promises to voters. They have preferred the false peace of decorum to the true progress of democracy. If they choose that path again, they will lose their majority in 2022, and they will deserve it. What do you make of that analysis? Yeah, I mean, I agree that we need to do away with the filibuster, that it's been an obstacle, especially to meaningful legislation that would benefit everyday people. Adam Gentleson, uh, who used to work for uh, Harry Reid, just wrote a, a book about the history of the filibuster. And in it, he makes clear in that history that was it was particularly used throughout our nation's history to block civil rights legislation and similar legislation. The thing is that the Senate of today is much more polarized than the Senate of 15 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. So it's going to be almost impossible to get big, meaningful legislation done or, or even to build on legislation that's already in place, like the Voting Rights Act that was partially gutted by the Supreme Court a few years ago. One of the other things that was pointed out is that the Democrats in the Senate represent 41 million more people than Republicans, even though they are evenly split 50-50. As you know, there's already a tilting towards smaller states that is built into the Senate, right? Because every state gets two senators. So California that has, you know, 40 million people or whatever it is, you know, same as, as Wyoming, Texas, my home state that has over 30 million people, the same as North Dakota and South Dakota. So you already have a protection for small states. And then you layer on top of that, something like the filibuster, which Mitch McConnell already has done away with when it's been convenient and others have too. This is, you know, something that both parties over the last 15, 20 years have chipped away at. I think it's only a matter of time if Democrats don't do this before Republicans do it and then start passing terrible legislation that would essentially benefit to an even greater extent, big corporations and people who are already affluent instead of everyday working folks and families that actually need, you know, investment out there. So I believe that the filibuster should be done away with. You still have, of course, to get a majority in order to get legislation passed. It's already been done away with when it comes to Supreme Court nominations. It's essentially already been done away with when it comes to budgeting through the reconciliation process that only requires 50 plus one. They're already halfway there. Do you believe that line? that Klein wrote, they have preferred the false peace of decorum to the true progress of democracy. I do think that uh, that there's a decorum in 
legislative bodies, not only in the Senate, but among politicians at every level. And a lot of times politicians are hesitant to take on their colleagues. And sometimes that translates into upholding rules like the filibuster that are nowhere in the Constitution, but essentially serve the the comedy, the collegiality of the body, you know, instead of being able to directly benefit people who need it in the country. Uh, you know, I'm sure that folks who serve in the Senate, some folks who serve in the Senate would disagree with that. And I can see the argument for, hey, look, you know, you think you're going to get your 50 plus one right now when you have control, but 10 years later, when the other side has control, you're going to be wishing that, you know, you had the filibuster to, to try and protect against the worst aspects of their agenda. I get that. But the thing is, the fundamental difference between Democrats and Republicans, and I'd say liberals and most conservatives, is that Democrats want to use the government to do something. In other words, in order to see our vision through, we need to actually move. We need to get something done, invest resources, change the law to expand opportunity. Whereas I think that the Republican stance is government get out of the way, or at least traditionally it has been. Don't do something. So if you lower the threshold for being able to actually get something done in the body, in the long term, that actually benefits the philosophy that needs government to get something done. And yet I can't help but think of what you said earlier about pursuing the impeachment because it is the right thing to do. But after all your years in public service, are you certain? Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is that many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tightknit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. 
and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts. The right thing to do is always the right thing to do. That's a great question. I think it brings up the issue of when do you have to be or should you be strategic about when and how you do the right thing? And of course, in politics, there is an element of that. It's like asking somebody, in some ways, it's like asking somebody, is it always right to tell the truth? Well, of course you would say, yeah, you know, it's always right to tell the truth. But hey, look, there's certain moments where in certain instances, and depending on how big or small that truth is, that, you know, you may not, you don't always speak your mind, everything that comes to mind or everything that would be the truth in that moment, right? You have to be tactful. You have to be considerate of the moment of people's feelings. Well, this is a, a rough analogy, but you have to do the right thing and you also have to be strategic about it. The problem becomes that at some point, I think too many people in politics, they use the idea of it's, we're just being strategic and they never actually get to doing the right thing. You know, they use that as a cover. I have found if people would stand up in more instances and just do the right thing, that that in and of itself has the effect of moving the political dynamic and moving the people of this country. You know, you think about, you know, Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat or folks at the lunch counter in the civil rights movement standing their ground. There is a power in doing the right thing, whether it's in that context or in the political context, that sometimes you can't even see where the ripples of that are going to go or how it's going to affect things, but it does. You know, I, I applaud folks who are thoughtful about the strategy, but I think sometimes there's too much strategizing and not enough standing up. But I think you have been especially strategic in almost everything you've done. And I'm curious, as a third-generation Mexican-American and as uh, a second-generation Mexican-American myself, you have this quote, and I wonder how much this rings true to you. You said, I didn't grow up with the skin color or the background where you normally get a second chance, where you get to fail upward. You know, when I was on the debate stage, I was very well aware that people would look at me on the debate stage and they wouldn't just judge me, but unfortunately, because there have been very few Latinos or Latinas, um, Hispanics that have made it to those places, they would also be judging others. I also know looking backward and how I grew up, and this was really my, the, the idea behind my quote was, I grew up on the west side of San Antonio in this working class neighborhood. And you couldn't count on that if you didn't 
finish high school or you didn't go to college or you had a criminal record or whatever, that you were going to get another chance in life. And uh, I think that's very common, especially for people of color. And so my point was sort of baked into how I approach things. And now just part of how I am, you know, publicly and my personality was this being careful about, you know, trying to make sure that I had my ducks in a row and that I was prepared and, and that I was always professional and so forth. You don't have the luxury, right, of, of sometimes seeming as unscripted or vulgar or, you know, whatever, as, as other folks do. Unfortunately, I think that'll change, you know, I mean, as, as it becomes more common. You're, you're allowed to curse on the show if that's what you're asking for. <laughs> there you go. But, but at the same time, you know, during this campaign, during my presidential campaign, if you took a look at that campaign versus the mayoral campaign or other parts of my public life, probably we were more unvarnished and direct than at any other point. And I think part of that was just the Trump era. I also think you were taking a page from your mother, who mm -hmm. was a pretty vocal activist in Texas in the late 60s and early 70s. And I want to go to her in that period, because at that time, many Mexican-Americans viewed identifying as Chicano or Chicana as controversial. Your mother said, the struggle wasn't always so much on the outside as on the inside. As she became more politically vocal, some family members of yours would say, hey, you're ruining it for everyone. And that line from your cousins, it has stuck with me. You're ruining it for everyone. That line implies that the conditions within the Latino community are so good or good enough to not want them altered. Where do you, as a third-generation Mexican-American, think about this, your approximation to whiteness, to assimilation? I mean, I don't profess to be any expert by any means on this, except to say that, you know, I've lived my own life like other folks have in, in, in the Latino community. And, you know, I've lived my life as somebody that obviously, when you look at me, you know, I'm brown. And at the same time, I'm not proficient, I'm not fluent at Spanish. My English is a lot better than my Spanish, and my English doesn't have a heavy accent to it and so forth. I think all of those things, you know, it, this just underscores how complex Latinx identity is. There's been even more of a spotlight on places like the Valley of Texas voted in a higher percentage for Donald Trump than they had four years ago. There are a lot of things that go into it, right? Not just your skin color, but the language, obviously your cultural experience, people from different national origin backgrounds. It's true that you have a number of people in our community that identify with whiteness more than they necessarily identify as, quote unquote, a person of color. Sometimes that translates into a more conservative politics too. And sometimes it doesn't. But a lot of times my sense is that it does. For me, I grew up with a mom that was a Chicana activist and dressed that being Mexican-American was something to be proud of and, you know, everything that goes with that, color of your skin, your cultural background, 
the language at the same time, I have said publicly, look, uh, I bet like a lot of other people, a lot of other Mexican Americans, a lot of other people of color of different backgrounds, and also a lot of white immigrant groups from times past in our country when they were just coming over here. I grew up, you know, like preferring English language music. I grew up in a schoolyard where, you know, we would kid about, you know, like mojados or wetbacks, like you're kidding or putting down your own group, almost like this internalized self-oppression. The classic example is, you know, kids that would look down on having to bring their, their tacos to lunch, you know, in a brown paper bag and eat that. It was conveyed in different ways and then carried in your heart this internalized oppression about your culture and people and its value, their value in society. At least in my generation, that was still very much the case. And I have a feeling that that's probably still the case out there, unfortunately, with kids. So, you know, as a dad of an 11-year-old girl and a five-year-old boy, you know, we do different things to help try and make sure that they have a healthy self-confidence about who they are. And I have to say, I mean, I do think our country has made a lot of progress from when my grandmother was growing up. And when she was a girl, you could still see signs on storefront windows that said, you know, no Mexicans or dogs allowed. Whereas my daughter Karina today goes to a public school that is dual language and studies Spanish. You know, my mother would get her wrist slapped with a ruler if she spoke Spanish in school. But today, you know, it's celebrated that you would learn another language, including Spanish. Um, that's progress. And we should own that. We should be happy about that. You know, but I also think there's no question that um, that our society still conveys you know, this this sense of what's valued the most. I think that some folks in our community they grab onto that, they latch onto that, uh, and that's prerog their prerogative. If you know, if somebody wants to identify as one way or another, who am I to tell them? Right, that's not my role. My hope is that no matter how somebody identifies that they're thoughtful about the experiences of other people who look different from them or may have had a different cultural experience or have a different language proficiency than they do. It's clear any future success Democrats may have is dependent on activating groups who have been historically resistant to political activation. In Georgia, we just saw a 10-year-long project come to fruition as black turnout increased. In our Latino community, we've had a hard time not only getting people to vote, but when they do go to the ballot box, there's a significant part of the population that does not vote in their best interest. And given everything we've been talking about, how do we connect better? How do we communicate the values and needs better? It starts with showing up and organizing in places that too often times there hasn't been enough organizing in, whether that's the Valley of South Texas or that's uh, other places, so that we're listening more and we're present more and people understand that you care about their concerns. Another part of it is 
you know, you have to have a strong, clear message about the difference that Democrats make in people's lives. And you have to produce results. That's why I think it's so important that this new administration is so set on undoing the worst damage of the Trump administration and then getting concrete, important things done for people. It will make a difference if people get the relief they need right now as they face eviction, as they have lost their job. It'll make a difference if their mother and their grandmother are able to get a vaccine soon versus having to wait six months that they see there's a competent government. There are also other issues, obviously cultural issues and issues of faith that in the Latino community, there are some Latinos and, you know, I obviously I've met them in a community that's 64% Latino here in San Antonio. You start talking to them about voting Democrat and the, the first issue they bring up is the issue of abortion, right? There's some folks, whether they're Latino or of other backgrounds, that there are issues like that, that they're just, so you're just off the table if that's the main issue, overwhelming issue they care about. But for everyone who doesn't use that kind of litmus test, I think we need to focus on those basic things that, that they encounter in their everyday lives about being able to make a good living, their child getting a good education, them having decent health care. Also, people being treated fairly, you know? They want to know that they're going to be treated fairly without regard to their background so that they can go out and try and reach their dreams. I think one of the ironies is that communities that have been kept down the most in our country's history often believe the most in the American dream. You know, they keep that flame alive of what America should be, can be, even right now. We need to speak to that. I know the intent of what you just said was supposed to be hopeful, but yeah. it's also really depressing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's both of those things, right? Because it, it, it's, it's sad. The way that I think about it, and I've said before, is like, I sometimes think about if my grandmother's generation and generations before her had been allowed to get an education and to thrive without discrimination, how many more Fortune 500 companies might have been founded or medical breakthroughs might have been made or beautiful novels might have been written because of all the brain power that they had, but never reached its full potential. And the goal we need to have is that these young people, like, you know, my daughter and the children of all of those folks who never had these kinds of opportunities, that they actually live in a country where they can reach those dreams. And I think it's partly because of that, because that those dreams have been stunted in the past, that we're still very much wanting to get there and believing that we can get there and keeping that hope that we can get there. As we leave this, I wanted to present something to you. It's a poem called I Am Joaquin, which inspired the name of your twin brother and I know means a great deal to you and your family. If you're open to it, I was hoping you'd read part of that poem for us. Yeah, I'd be glad to read it. You know, of course, this is uh, one of my favorite poems because this is uh, from the height of the Chicano movement, 1969, by Corky Gonzalez, who was an activist out of Denver. 
my mother and father were both involved in the Chicano movement. This is the very end of this epic poem. It says, in a country that has wiped out all my history, stifled all my pride, in a country that has placed a different weight of indignity upon my age-old burden back, inferiority is the new load. I look at myself and see part of me who rejects my father and my mother and dissolves into the melting pot to disappear in shame. La raza, Mexicano, Espanol, Latino, Chicano, or whatever I call myself, I look the same, I feel the same, I cry and sing the same. I am the masses of my people, and I refuse to be absorbed. I am Joaquin. The odds are great, but my spirit is strong, my faith unbreakable, my blood is pure. I shall endure. I will endure. How do we endure? If I could add two lines to the end of that poem that reflect where I hope we are now, it would be, I shall prosper. I will prosper. Because that's the great hope that I have for my kids is that they won't only endure, but that they're going to go beyond that and that they're going to prosper We're going to endure by doing what we always do, which is to work hard, keep the faith, and keep family, to know who we are. But I think we're going to prosper together when we work to make changes in this democracy and to unburden our children from everything that has held them back in the past. I think we can survive amongst ourselves, I think we can only prosper with everybody else. And that's why it's so important that in every single way that we can, whether it's becoming a Supreme Court justice or becoming the president or volunteering or just voting, that we make a contribution to this democracy that will allow all of us to prosper. Julian Castro, may we prosper. Thanks a lot, Sam. Thanks for your time. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Jacqueline Westfall and the team at Lemonada. I also want to thank, of course, Julian Castro. You can listen to his new podcast, Our America, wherever you do your podcasting. For more on him, visit our show notes at www.talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to hear other conversations in this spirit, I'd recommend our talks with Dolores Huerta, Pedro O'Rourke, Representative Ilhan Omar, Dr. Cornell West, and Noam Chomsky. If you'd like to join our mailing list, drop us a line at talkeasypod at gmail.com. If you'd like to purchase our record with Fran Leibowitz or buy one of those two mugs we had made, you can visit our site at talkeasypod.com slash shop. 
Our show is made possible each week by our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our lead editor is Andre Lin. Managing editor, David Harding. Our assistant editors are Joshua Siegel and Kevin Kaur. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our interns are Patrice Lee, Claire Hardwick, and Grace Perkins. Video and graphics by Derek Gabrzak, Ethan Seneca, and Orion Wong. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fracoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back on Wednesday with a bonus episode featuring Dr. Ashish Jha. Until then, stay safe and so long. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And how are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.